What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Wrestling brought to you today and powered by the Triple Threat Podcast on the IRW Network. Head on over to IRWnetwork.com every Monday and get a brand new episode of the Triple Threat Podcast featuring ECW original and former ECW heavyweight champion, the franchise Shane Douglas, and John Paz and myself, the two-man power trip of wrestling, every single Monday, featuring fan questions in the Ask Franchise Anything segment. 
an amazing array of news and hot topics as well as the word according to the franchise. And that is all on the Triple Threat podcast on the IRW Network every Monday. Head on over to IRWnetwork.com again for more on that amazing show. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today, you better recognize, because our guest is not the one to mess with, he is the one and only D'Lo Brown, a former WWF Intercontinental and European Champion, and now a part of a fantasy movement called Fantasy Slam out there in Las Vegas that is giving fans the opportunity to live out their dreams in a fantasy camp style, almost like a baseball fantasy camp where you get to walk the walk and talk the talk of a professional wrestler. And by learning from some of the best, you got D'Lo Brown and obviously you've got Sin Bodhi and you get guest trainers like Ricky the Dragon Steamboat or Jake the Snake Roberts. And you never know who's going to show up there. It's been an amazing experience to watch them grow so far. But we're going to learn all about that from D'Lo Brown, who John and I were so pumped to get on the show because he's got such an amazing background. And whether it's his time in Smoky Mountain Wrestling or even his time training at the Monster Factory in New Jersey, there's so many things that we could get into And we pretty much did with D'Lo. This was one intense conversation that covered an array of topics, to say the least. But when you think about D'Lo Brown, you think right to that Attitude Era, the heyday for a lot of fans, that Attitude Era, which really spotlighted not just those big stars like Austin and The Rock and The Undertaker and Kane, but the undercard of the WWF was quite possibly one of the most stacked it had ever been to that point, and D'Lo Brown was a huge part of that success. And when you think about D'Lo Brown, you think about not only his chest protector, but his reign as a European champion. And as I always love to say, when you talk about the European championship, you have to call it the coveted European championship, as Vince McMahon referred to it. And hey, I always loved the European Championship. I thought it was a cool belt. I thought it had a cool look. And for a while there, the European Championship had a pretty good run, I got to say. And D'Lo Brown may be the most synonymous individual with that European Championship. But obviously, like I said, that's not all we get into. There's so much to talk about with D'Lo. And when we talk about Fantasy Slam, you can definitely tell in his voice how into the project he is and what he feels really can help a lot of fans understand what it's like to be in the business. And yes, it might be a class, it might be a camp, but if you ever went and watched one of those baseball fantasy camp videos or you see how people plunk down all that money to go and be that person, whether it's a baseball player or now they do rock and roll fantasy camps, well, why not have a wrestling fantasy camp? And when you hear D'Lo explain why... If you've ever thought about it, you think you might have the chops for it, obviously get on over to Fantasy Slam and give it a try. And John will give you all the details in a little bit here about a huge, an absolutely huge course that they have coming up in a class of the Fantasy Slam empire that will feature Jake the Snake Roberts. And John will give you all the information in just a few minutes here. But as I welcome you in here, John... There's so much to talk about with D'Lo. There was a lot of ground to cover, but obviously hit us with a couple of the big points and some of the things we have to look forward to in a great conversation with D'Lo Brown. Yes, Chad, a great interview with a great veteran of the sport. You better recognize D'Lo Brown. Obviously, so many people will remember him from his days in the WWF during the 
vaunted Attitude Era, and obviously his time in the Nation of Domination, and his time as a WWF Intercontinental Champion, as well as a four-time European Champion. But it was awesome to get him on, not just to talk about WWF, but to talk about his time in Smoky Mountain Wrestling down there with James E. Cornette. Talked about his time on the New Jersey Indies scene. Yes, it's awesome to have another New Jersey guy join the show, as everyone probably knows listening that we are two New Jersey guys. So we naturally just love these guys that we grew up watching on the indie scene. Love that these guys that we've most likely you know met before at an indie show or we've seen them up close and personal and really enjoyed them for many, many years. So D'Lo Brown, you know, big soft spot from our end as far as being a New Jersey indie guy. We do go into his time in TNA as well, kind of being the mentor, if you will, to AJ Styles for a brief period of time. Obviously, they were NWA World Tag Team Champions together. They were part of a major feud, a big-time feud, had a couple steel cage matches, had a couple of uh, really, really great matches down there in TNA, even a two out of three falls match that really sticks out. But his time in TNA will be remembered by a lot of people, not, of course, that era, many years later, for his time with the Aces and Eights, and we go into that as well. Did he like the Aces and Eights? Did he not like the Aces and Eights? What did he think about it? Was, you know, this person supposed to be in it? Was that person supposed to be in the group? So we do go in detail and in depth on the Aces and Eights. As, of course, we have to. And, of course, you know, we talk about his favorite time in the business. And that happened to be over there, over in the Far East, in Japan. He loved his time in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Obviously, if you know anything about All Japan, you know about the ROD faction. And they were pretty legendary. Had a lot of top uh, guy gins, of course, in the group. And they were pretty dominant for a while. And a very interesting remarks from D'Lo Brown about ROD and what he thought about them. And how they were kind of the precursor to the Bullet Club. And how they were doing a lot of the stuff that the Bullet Club is doing now. It just wasn't on an international scale. It was more on a national scale just in Japan. So he makes some great points about that. I love the, you know, the point about the Bullet Club and what he thinks about them. So really, you know, keep a keen ear open for that one that is some good stuff we do talk about his time in pro wrestling noah as well but of course you know everything comes back to his time in the wbf like i mentioned euro and ic title reigns we talk about the nation of domination we talk about mark henry and their feud and their tag team and their relationship behind the scenes of course we talk about the one and only the rock we get a little bit into X-Pac, Vince McMahon, Triple H, and all the rest. We even talk about when DX impersonated him, of course, and of course Road Dog being the, the main culprit there. And we go in-depth on that whole angle about what was going on behind the scenes. Did they know about it? Did they want to know about it? Did they like it? So really, really, you're going to enjoy that part. And of course, no D'Lo Brown interview would be complete without talking about the chest protector so sit back relax and enjoy this one but right before you do that just please go to fantasyslamprowrestling.com yes that is fantasyslamprowrestling.com where you'll learn all about the fantasy slam wrestling camp involving D'Lo brown and involving sin who will be leading the charge and don't forget august 22nd through the 24th you'll get time in the ring with none other than the legend jake the Snake Roberts. So please check out FantasySlamProWrestling.com and hopefully you go there, you check it out, you enjoy yourself and you really immerse yourself with Sin, D'Lo, and Jake 
and become, you know, a part of the wrestling business that you fantasized ever since you were a young, young fan. So, like I said, please check out Fantasy Slam Wrestling Camp, and please enjoy this interview with D. Low Brown. Absolutely. And if you want to attend that course with Jake the Snake Roberts, your opportunity is over at FantasySlamProWrestling.com. Again, FantasySlamProWrestling.com for ages 18 to 81. You're never too old or out of shape to live your dreams. So why don't you get your chance to become a champion at Fantasy Slam, especially this coming August with Jake the Snake Roberts. Oh my goodness, the 22nd through the 24th, it is going to be absolutely insane if you don't get your ass over to FantasySlamProWrestling.com. So, as we wrap it up here, as we get ready for D'Lo Brown, John, why don't you step in here in just a minute, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. But before we do that, I want to remind you again, today's episode is brought to you by IRWNetwork.com. And like I said at the top, every Monday you get a brand new episode of the Triple Threat Podcast featuring myself, John, and the franchise Shane Douglas featuring a myriad of great topics, whether it's something in the news on the wrestling side, something on the current events side, whether it's political, whether it's entertainment, the franchise has something to say about it. But I think John and myself, our personal favorite topics on this show is the Ask Franchise Anything questions that get submitted by the fans, and we want more. So please hit us up at the triple threat pod at gmail.com and send questions to be answered on the Triple Threat Podcast by Shane Douglas, the franchise. Again, it's the triple threat pod at gmail.com. And every Monday, get over to the IRWnetwork.com and download. Our show, the Triple Threat Podcast. So now, John, why don't we get it on over to the interview, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and let's get it over to D-Lo Brown. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road August 12th at the Icons Collector Fest in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. September 9th, the Subway one-year anniversary in Keensburg, New Jersey with the hardcore icon Tommy Dreamer. October 21st, we hit the Legends of the Ring in New Jersey. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy, Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 1125 with 
Arn Anderson and Telly Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, a former NWA World Tag Team Champion, a former WWF Intercontinental Champion, and a four-time WWF European Champion, you better recognize he is D-Lo Brown. Please enjoy. You're looking at the real deal now. Gonna kick this sorry ass out on the street. <laughs> you used to think you own the street. We'll pack this bag and your ass is dead meat. Victory sweet. Here's a receipt. What you gonna do about it? Is that what you got? champion, a former Intercontinental champion, a former NWA World Tag Team champion, and he's here to talk about something very, very interesting. The one and only, again, I'm going to say it, you better recognize D'Lo Brown is not the one to mess with, and he is joining us live on the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thank you for joining us. What's going on, fellas? How you guys doing tonight? Uh, we're, uh, we're so pumped, D'Lo. It's so awesome to be talking to you. And it's so awesome to be talking about Fantasy Slam. And I personally have read a lot about it, but I'm ready to learn more about it tonight. And I uh, couldn't be any happier to have you on the phone. But how are things going on in the world of D'Lo Brown these days? Well, yeah, things are going well, man. I mean, we've got the Fantasy Slam going. And it's, it's, it's a cool concept that, uh, you know, Kim, you know, Sin Bodhi and, and myself came together with. And, um, you know, with the help of Jake Snake Roberts, it's, it's a way of, letting the common man live out his dreams as a professional wrestler for a few days. And you get to go in there, you get to do a little bit of training, and it culminates with doing some promos and having a match, and it's kind of fun. You get to hang out with, you know, different, you know, legends of the sports. You know, last time we had, uh, you know, uh, we were getting back in Steamboat, and, you know, coming up again, we got Jake, and then we have guys like Al Snow, and the list goes on and on. So it's kind of it's kind of like – um. You know, like baseball fantasy camp, when you go to spring training, you get to hang out with legends of like the Yankees, for example. You know, that's kind of what Fantasy Slam is now. Yeah, and your tagline, you're never too old or out of shape to live your dreams, is hilarious only because, I mean, there's some misconceptions that there could be out there about uh, fans of sports, fans of wrestling, fans of baseball, that you don't necessarily need to be an athlete to uh, maybe get in the ring or put on the pinstripes of a Yankee fantasy camp, but... How do you think the fans are going to take to this idea? It's something that I think everybody who watches wrestling is a armchair quarterback, so to speak. But now when you actually get to get in the ring and you've got three guys, obviously yourself and Sin, and then, oh, my God, Jake the Snake Roberts, you know, it's a pretty intimidating threesome. But what do you think the fans are going to bring to the table by coming from basically all walks of life? Well, I, I think they bring their own individuality, and I think they get a chance to, uh, like you said, people are armchair quarterbacks, so now you get to go out there and be on the field. You get to go 
participate in something you may have critiqued or just watched or been in love with since you were a kid, and, and it gives you a chance to to experience what it's like even for a short period of uh, the day in the life of one of your favorite superstars. So it's I'm hoping that, you know, the fans embrace it, and it's, um, it's a concept where, you know, it's open to a lot of people and it can open a lot of doors for people. So I'm, I'm just happy that we're, we're and hopefully, um, like I said, people take to it and then enjoy it. It's so cool because those fantasy camps, you know, for sports, baseball, it, you just, you, you always saw those from afar. You're like, wow, if wrestling had something like that, you know, I'd be the first person to sign up or I'd love to try to get down out to uh, where you guys are taking care of business. But you know, you you really are kind of catering to anybody's ability, and you're making no bones about it, because I think that's the biggest thing that of any kind of fan would be like, well, you know, I don't have the chops to get in the ring. Oh, I can't keep up with the stamina. Oh, I can't put in the cardio. But you guys are really making it an effort to tell everyone, no, you can come no matter what, because we're going to cater this to your, you know, abilities. And I think that that is really one of the uh, the biggest selling points to the average fan, that really anybody could jump between those ropes as long as they have that heart and that determination, and they could get in the ring, too, with Fantasy Slam. Absolutely. As long as you have the desire and want to, you know, each program is tailored to the individual. So it's not like there's this rigorous military-style training that no one can get to. It's not like, you know, Green Beret or, or you know, or Black Ops freaking uh, boot camp. This is everything is tailored to the individual. So, you know, literally anyone can get out there and we can find a way to, to, to get you to live out your dream. So, I mean, the possibilities are endless and the doors are open for everybody to try it. So, personally, what have you seen with this response? And and I think, obviously, you know, you, you said it already, but what did you think about rolling it out? You guys came up with a great concept, but were you nervous to get it out to the fans? Because when you have an idea and you roll it out, obviously you have your hesitations, but have you guys been satisfied with the response so far from the people who have reached out to you guys? Yeah, definitely been satisfied and happy. But, yeah, like you said, whenever you come up with a different, unique concept, that first time you put it out there for the, for the general population, you're kind of like, well, let's, let's cross our fingers and hope, and you hold your breath, and then – and we did the same thing, but then a couple of days we started getting responses, and uh, we started getting people who were interested. And we had uh, one class already working the Dragon Steamboat, so um, I'm really happy so far how it's going, and I'm just waiting for it to grow bigger and better, and you know get some more fantasy slams going. Now, you yourself being a well-traveled champion of Europe, you obviously know that fans come from all over the world. And have you had? that rabid international fan base reaching out to you guys yet to maybe come over across the pond perhaps and, uh, and learn from guys like you and Jake and Sin? We have had interest from overseas from as far as uh, um, England and Germany and, and all the way down to, um, I think the first one away is like Spain so far. So we definitely have some interest from overseas and um, it's exciting. Like I'm really looking forward to seeing how, how big uh, this can grow and, and, and how often we can do it and how we can take advantage of it. Now, how's, Jake's, how's Jake been with all this? Because I can see how people may be intimidated by Jake the Snake Roberts. Obviously, if you get to know him, you know he is. He's very fun-loving. He's goofy. He likes to play jokes. But I think the fan and their you know, general thought on Jake the Snake, they think of the methodical and the plotting and the, the technician in the ring and the psychology. So do you see the fans maybe being a little bit intimidated by a guy like Jake Roberts coming into Fantasy Slam? Yeah, I can see any fan going, man, that's the guy who, you know, he plays with snakes and he's, 
you can look in his eyes and he's always thinking and, you know, he's, he's kind of scary and, and, and intimidating. And yes, this is true. All that is true. But when Jake is teaching, Jake's the teacher and, and all that goes away and all he is is focused on getting you to learn what, what you need to learn. So that, that, that mystique of his kind of disappears. It's always there. Don't get me wrong. I'm never going to take that away, but it kind of disappears. And he goes into teaching mode. So, don't be too intimidated by Jake the Snake Roberts. Uh, you're more likely to be intimidated by Sid because he's a scary son of a gun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sin is uh, Sin's world is definitely one that is very intimidating, and uh, maybe it sometimes makes the snakes on the side of Jake's tights look a little, uh, you know, look like garden snakes compared to the pythons and some of the stuff that Sin has done in the past in uh, in pro wrestling. But what I love about you guys and what you're doing with Fantasy Slam is kind of thinking about how you got your start. And obviously, you know, we know you trained at the Monster Factory, and we're both Jersey guys. So, uh, obviously, we just lost Larry Sharp not too long ago, only about a month and a half ago. And the yeah, Monster Factory known – Yeah, and the Monster Factory really is one of the most revered uh, training sites in the country. So, obviously, you coming from there – and all the stops you made in between and all the places that you've been, you've already got a pedigree there, but can you kind of share some memories of uh, getting to the Monster Factory and obviously Larry Sharp, you know, some memories of him as well, you know, as you've now gotten into, you know, quote, the, uh, you know, the fantasy slam business, but Larry Sharp, obviously, and the Monster Factory, really, uh, they got a lot of careers started on the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, for, for those who don't know, the Monster Factory is one of the, you know, it is to me on the same level as, as the Heart Dungeon. I mean, in terms of stars that have come from the Monster Factory and continue to come from Monster Factory. And, you know, I, growing up as, as a Jersey guy, you know, I knew guys like Bam Bam Bigelow who were there, who had gone through there, because it wasn't too terribly far from my house where I grew up. Um, and, I, you know, I, since I was eight, I always wanted to be a pro wrestler, so I always told myself I'd go there. Eventually, um, when, I, when I left college, when I finished in college and I – came back down to Jersey, I, friends and I, now don't tell anybody, it's between you, me, you know, the two of us here, but I was a backyarder who taught myself a lot, um, and we used to put on our own fake little pay-per-views, we had paper mache belts and all that stuff, but that's way, way too much information, um, but every now and then we would rent a ring from Larry Sharp, uh, and, you know, we'd pay some ungodly amount per hour, I want to say it was like 50 or 100 bucks an hour, and we put on our own little pay-per-views, um, so the story of how I really got in the Monster Factory, Larry one time was like, well, let me sit around and watch these guys because I'm stealing their money. I might as well watch what they're doing. Um, and at the end of it, he came to me and said, hey, you're pretty athletic. You know, you're big, you're athletic. You ever think about doing this for real? And I was like, who, me? And he goes, yeah, you. You ever think about doing this for real? And I was like, I'd love to. And that's how I got my introduction to the Monster Factory. And I went from ring to ring on a Sunday to being a student, getting trained by the by the headbangers on like a Wednesday. I mean, just that quick. Um, and, and, you know, the cool thing about the Monster Factory is all the guys that were there, like I said, the, the, the headbangers were there, and, you know, guys like Balls Mahoney were there, and Rex of Soul, Chris Candido, and Sonny were there. Um, you know, and that was like the best part of being there, is all these guys who were getting it, just about to take off in the world of wrestling, and you're sitting there watching them, you know, and one week you're training with them, and next week, you know, Chris Candido down in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And it, it was just cool to be part of that. And that's, like, my favorite memories. Like, you know, guys coming in, like, um, when X-Pac was the Lightning Kid, and he would come in and do shows for Larry. Those were 
the coolest memories I have. And it's kind of funny when you, you spend four or 20 years and you talk to those same guys and it's like, they almost, you know, they remember you when you were there because, you know, you, you kind of stick out. Like I remember when Big Show came in there um, into the Monster Factory for a minute. So it, those are my best memories of the Monster Factory, just the guys you met in the beginning and then spend it for 20 years later sharing the stories. And basically everybody up to Big Show uh, went from Monster Factory almost uh, immediately down to Smoky Mountain. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But, yeah, Monster Factory, Larry Sharp, and, you know, like we mentioned twice here, Larry Sharp passed away not too long ago. What was something that Larry Sharp really taught you from the start? You know, like you said, he was, he was taking your money, you guys were renting the ring, but then he was kind of getting to watch you. But, you know, what is some of the best advice Larry Sharp gave you as you were starting to really kind of cut your teeth? And, obviously, he was bringing guys up to TV, and you guys were kind of getting in there uh, with his connections and the enhancement matches were coming. But what were some of the things that Larry Sharp taught you right from the start? Well, he always taught me to have an appreciation for the business. Um, Larry gave me some of the best advice ever. You know, he said, you know, opportunities come. You know, you never know when they're going to be here, but you're only guaranteed two things in wrestling. So you make you got to make sure you, you grasp both of them. The two things are you'll have your first match, and one day you're going to hang your boots up. And he goes, just remember those are the only two guarantees. Everything else is an opportunity. So appreciate what you're given. Appreciate the chances you get. And when you're given an opportunity, make the most of it. And that's kind of what um, some of the advice that Larry gave me that stick to me till this day that, you know, I spin forward to, to students and, and people I know out there. Yeah, we got a lot of time uh, talking with Glenn and, uh, and Chaz from the Headbangers, and they were telling us some great stories of the Monster Factory, and they were even talking about how, well, yeah, the big show did stop through there and sometimes might not even admit that he came through the Monster Factory, but uh, Larry Sharp definitely had that Big Show uh, 8x10 hanging up pretty proudly on the wall, the Monster Factory. Yeah, I know. Big Show came through there. I remember the day. I remember thinking, God, he's the biggest person I ever saw in my life. And then literally it was like a month later he was winning the WCW World Heavy title. So um, kind of weird. But, yeah, he, he came through there even for a minute. It's crazy, really. You know, you mentioned Candido, you mentioned Sonny, and everybody ended up in that Smoky Mountain territory that we all know and love. Jim Cornette, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, you were part of the gangsters, but kind of talk to us how you got from the Monster Factory down to Smoky Mountain and uh, what your initial thoughts of being a Jersey guy was heading down there into the, uh, to those deep mountains of uh, Kentucky and Tennessee and all the West Virginia, all the places that Smoky Mountain used to do some of those crazy shows. Well, I can tell you, as a Jersey guy going down south for the first time, it was um, it was a rude awakening and something. It was a cultural cultural differences that I couldn't even begin to uh, contemplate coming from New Jersey, going to Knoxville, Tennessee, and then being around, you know, like Tucky and Georgia and the Carolinas. It's just a different way of life there. But um, I got there very funny. Uh, Balls Mahoney who at the time went down to go do a tryout. And uh, he went down to do a tryout and got hired to be a character named Boo Bradley. Well, he, he was going to start TV in a month. He'd come back, to, um, he'd come back up to uh, Jersey to uh, get his affairs in, in order. Balls didn't have a driver's license and couldn't drive himself back down. So he said, hey, whoever wants to drive me down, I will make sure Jim Cornette gets you a dark match at the TV. So I saw it as an opportunity. I, I was like, I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, drove him down. 
got down there, and uh, Jim Cornette gave me eight minutes to prove myself and hired me right after that. And, uh, you know, I, I owe my first big break of any kind to, you know, to Larry, but giving me my first job, I give to Jim Cornette. That's, uh, you know, something I, I tell him to this day I appreciate him for, and, and, and I don't know what he saw in me, but I'm glad he saw something. So what's your first thought as uh, Jim Cornette as a boss? He can definitely be, uh, from what we understand, what we've heard through the grapevine, he can be a little bit, uh, a little, little bit hot under the collar sometimes. But uh, he's definitely a trip. We love Jim Cornette. But what are your uh, your first thoughts on uh, Jim Cornette as a boss? Jim Cornette as a boss is old school, and if you don't uh, appreciate old school wrestling and the old school way of life with wrestling, he'll let you know it. And uh, I've always been a tremendous admirer of Cornette and a tremendous friend, for, a, friend a fan of his. And when I got there, um, he did not disappoint. He was Jim Cornette 24-7. And, uh, you know, my time at Smokey was some of the best that I had in this business. And I, I, I owe a lot to Jim for teaching me a, a bunch about how to be a professional. And then obviously being a part of that gangsters group, uh, a lot of heat came to, towards you guys. Yeah. Before I get to that. Before I get to that, I just want to throw this in here really quick, and we're going to obviously talk about the Attitude Era and all that great stuff you did. But there's a, a, a 20-year feud between Jim Cornette and Vince Russo that's been brewing for years. And obviously, Cornette gave you your start, and Russo was writing for the WWF at the time where you really just took off, and, and that European title story and, and everything you were doing was all kind of in the world of, of Vince Russo at the time. But where do you kind of – sit in this kind of this argument between these two guys? Or what are your thoughts looking at the, the fact this 20-year rivalry between these two guys has come to kind of like, uh, I, I've been saying, building to a crescendo that now Russo's really put the big, you know, the boots to the situation with this protective order. But where do you kind of lie in that Russo versus Cornette feud? And I'm in a weird spot because, you know, I love them both. Uh, I respect them both. So for me, I'm just I sit back and I'm just watching and I just I stay away from it because I can't pick a side because both men mean a great deal to me and there's no way I could pick one over the other in any way, shape or form. So for me, I just I watch it, I see what's going on, but I uh, I recuse myself from the situation for lack of a better term. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great answer, and you're really was one of the first people I thought about because when you try to connect both worlds, you know, you got your Smoky Mountain time and your connection to Cornette, and obviously Russo's role in WWF. I had to throw that in there now, as we continued with uh, Smoky Mountain, but you really might be one of the more perfect people to ask about that just because of your relationship uh, to both guys. But you talk about the gangsters, you talk about Smoky Mountain. Now we're talking about a Jersey guy going down into that territory. But the gangsters had some of the most, as they say, uh, you know, I, I guess you, you, the heat you guys got was absolutely mind-boggling. What were your, uh, what were your memories of that time with the gangsters and uh, really sending those fans absolutely buck wild, uh, thinking that maybe uh, something crazy was going to go down post-match? Yeah, no, it was, um, it was scary. It was intimidating. I mean, you know, got, coming from guys, you know, like I said, come from Jersey, uh, there's very, very little – you know, racism to the least. But then you go to Tennessee and here you got these three black guys proclaiming hate white people in the middle of the South. And, man, it the heat was legit. You could feel it. It was tangible. I mean, 
It's not like people booed you because you were the bad guy. These people wanted us dead, literally. Um, and, you know, it was scary some of the times you go into some of these small little towns in Kentucky and, you know, not know what was waiting for you. You know, you go into some of these small Georgia towns and, you know, we embraced it. I love being the heel. But I got to tell you, there were times when it was like, you know, Jimmy would say, get in your car and don't stop driving until you get back to Knoxville. And he damn sure wouldn't stop. You don't stop for gas. You don't stop for food because you never know what's going to happen. So, you know, we would make sure the car was gassed up on the way into town. We'd have snacks in the car, and we'd drive two or 300 miles without stopping, just going straight back because you never know if someone was following you. You never know if someone would recognize you at a gas station. Just get in the car and drive. And it was, um, it, like I said, it was scary at times. You could literally turn and look and see the hate in these people's eyes. And, you know, part of it was, was color. Part of it was wrestling is, was, was taken very legit in the, in the south part of the United States. Um, and it's, it's a cultural thing where a lot of these people have grown up in wrestling. So when you're the bad guy and you're beating up on, you know, Ricky and Robert, the Rock and Roll Express, who are the prototypical, prototypical baby faces, boy, that heat was, uh, it was legit heat. I've never felt anything like that ever, ever in my life. Yeah, and then what about New Jack? I mean, my gosh, so if you felt the heat and you guys are driving from one town to the next, pedal to the metal, getting straight out of Dodge, New Jack is the one really at the helm there, and just some of those promos are just – you could say they're, quote, you know, ahead of their time, but just in, in that time frame, 1994, 1995, we didn't see anything like that going on in pro wrestling, let alone in a territory like Smoky Mountain. But did you sometimes maybe uh, scratch your head at some of the things that New Jack was saying just because – you know, you did want to survive and get to that next town. You know, it, it amazes me the promos that Jack, that Jack could cut and the things that he would say and, and, and the way he would say things. And, yeah, it, it's like when you didn't think he could top what he was going to say, the next promo was like, oh, my God, he just said, oh, my God, he just said that. But then you, once, when you're in the character, you're embracing it um, because you know it's going to generate that heat. You're, you're – you're putting butts in the seat because at the end of the day, those people showed up and, and paid to see us lose. And every time we didn't, it, it pissed them off even more. And Jack kept turning the heat up on them. And, you know, you know you're know, you right. Jack was the leader of it. And, you know, he spoke, he, was the, he was the mouthpiece. And Jack a lot, got a lot more heat generated towards Jack individually, more so than the gangsters as a whole. But, you know, Jack loved it and he embraced it. He, he loved it. What's the one promo that you think about when you think about the gangsters in Smoky Mountain Wrestling and you think about really trying to fight for your life and survive? Is there one specific promo or match or moment where you really thought that it blurred the line between, uh, you know, what is uh, professional wrestling and what is uh, the reality of somebody's well-being? Uh, there was one TV I remember we beat up Ricky and Robert and – um, threw them over the top rope with a noose around their neck, so it looked like we lynched them. So yeah, that kind of got real close to blurring the lines of um, <laughs> blurring the lines of, of reality and, and life and art. Um, yeah, that was. Uh, I remember watching that back on. I can't believe I did that. Some of the greatest stuff, I mean, remember getting exposed to that for the first time and you were like, this literally could be on every week and be the most compelling television, you know, on the national level. But when you think about the national level and you think about Smoky Mountain Wrestling, 
dear Lord, you think about these names of like yourself, and we think about the headbangers, and then Kane coming out of there, and Al Snow, and Candido, and Balls, all these great people to come from Smoking Mountain Wrestling to become almost like the original feeder to the WWF. Do you look at that locker room and think about the faces that were back there and say, wow, this really was quite possibly the greatest collection of rookies, cast-offs, you know, guys transitioning in and out of both the major companies and quite possibly being the most impressive uh, locker room and roster that any professional wrestling companies ever had at one time? Uh, without a doubt, it was the deepest, most talented roster that I've ever seen, a, a collection of talent. And, you know, you, you forgot guys like Lance Storm and Chris Jericho there at the same time. So, I mean, this, this roster was just deep. And, yeah, to me, unofficially, it was probably the first – developmental territory because Vince had a pipeline for all this talent that he could just handpick what he wanted to. You know, he picked, you know, Al Snow and, and, and Glenn Jacobs Kane went up and, you know, uh, you know, guys like uh, the Dirty White Boy and Brian Lee and, you know, these guys were, it was just, it was like having a giant toy chest of talented toys that he, you know, anybody could just, you know, Vince could just go out, okay. I need a six foot three guy right now. Boom. And there it was. He had to look very far. Um, and with, you know, knowing that Jim Cornette was the mastermind behind it. Um, Vince knew that that talent was getting schooled properly on TV and, 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 and how to work and how to, uh, how to get over with a crowd and, and how to, you know, captivate an audience. So that was stuff he didn't have to worry about when it came to going up to his national level. So, um, I by far believe Smokey Mountain was ahead of his time, and I think if Smokey Mountain were to start today, it would be one of the most impressive um, independents out there right now today. Smokey Mountain was unbelievable. What a territory. Obviously, Cornette is you know a genius and just a great, great promoter, was a great promoter at that time. But how did you get your role in the WBF? Like you said, Vince is kind of cherry-picking guys. So when it comes to picking you, how does he pick you, you know, to basically make your debut for the WBF? Well, that was, um, once again, i got to give Jim Cornette that, um, because I had left Smoky Mountain, started touring a little bit around the States, and then I went down to Puerto Rico. And I was in Puerto Rico from, um, you know, like I don't want to say March of 96 till December of 96. Well, anyway, I come home from, for Christmas break, and I just give Jim a, a, just a regular courtesy call. Hey, Jim, how you doing? And he's like, my boy, where you been? And I'm like, I was out of Puerto Rico. He goes, I was trying to get a hold of you about a month ago. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, but I want to have something better for you. And come to find out when he's trying to get a hold of me, do you remember when they brought in a series of mid-card guys that were basically jobbers with gimmicks like the Pug and T.L. Hopper and, and – um, I forget what Tracy Smothers came in as. But anyway, Freddie Joe Floyd. Floyd. Well, initially, Cornette had pitched me to be one of those characters, the enhancement guys with character. With, with character. While I was in Puerto Rico, he couldn't get a hold of me. So when I called him, he's like, you know, hey, let me make a phone call. Curry back. So, okay. Uh, this is like the day after Christmas. He goes, can you be in New York next Saturday? Uh, and I was like, yeah. And he goes, all right, someone from travel will call you. I'm like, someone from travel? He goes, someone will call you. And he goes, do you have a black suit? I'm like, uh, yeah, I got one in the closet. He goes, bring that. Okay. About an hour later, I got a call from WWF at the time, travel department. They booked my flight to New York, and that was for the first shotgun Saturday night. 
and that's literally how I got in there. Um, and then the first night, that's when I got pro plunge on top of uh, Ahmed Johnson pro plunge on top of the car. Didn't saw me take that bump and loved it, and I didn't look back from that moment. That was quite a vicious bump, and I remember Ahmed killed you with it, but uh, very, very remember, uh, you know, very memorable. So when you were with the nation, it was kind of like a nondescript, non-defined role at first. Were you just happy to be there, or was it almost like, all right, what's my role? What's my character? No, uh, I was ha- first of all, you're happy to be there. I was, I was playing in the biggest company, you know, and the place everyone wants to be, so I was there. You know, and my role, I knew what my role was. There was the nation, and there was the, there was the, the, for lack of a term, the lynch mob that walked with the nation, and none of those guys that were in that ed there could actually, all of them were literally legit friends of Clarence Thomas, or Clarence Thomas, Clarence Mason, Clarence Thomas, not Chief Justice, <laughs> um, Clarence Mason. Um, and so they needed a guy who could bump, because those guys were getting heat on the floor, but no one could ever get it back to them. So Cornette suggested me being the guy who could, uh, go in there and bump. So I knew what my role was, and, and then all it was was whenever I was given an opportunity, I wanted to make it the best moment I had. And that's why when I took the pro plunge off the car, um, if I got thrown through a table, whatever it was, I was going to do it so well that I was going to get someone's attention. And that's just what, you know, what you're taught to do is just whenever you're given three seconds, make it the most important three seconds on the show. And so I knew what my role was, and I knew what I wanted to do. You know, I was working for the job I wanted, not the one I had. And, Eventually, you know, uh, within a, a few months, they started putting me on house shows and having me wrestle on house shows, not on TV yet. And then within a, within six months, I was on TV. You know, that's when Ron fired the rest of the nation and kept me, and we went from there. Definitely. And that group, you know, kind of just circling back just for a second, but that group was great at that point because obviously, you know, WCW versus WWF is going on, and there's a whole Monday Night War but the war between the nation domination and Ahmed really was kind of at a fever pitch. I just remember how over Ahmed was and how the crowd really hated Farouk and you guys. Were you mm-hmm. kind of feeling that every night? Were you feeling that, wow, Ahmed is really over? But I don't know if everyone's kind of getting that. No, I, Ahmed was over. There was a point when he was definitely one of the top stars in the company, and, and the people loved him. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was so cool to be out there feeling that every night. Um, just playing opposite of someone who's over by default. You know, we had heat. We had good heat because we're beating up on this guy that everybody loves. So it, every time you touched him, you could once again you could feel the heat and and feel it grow. Um, and it was it was very enjoyable to be out there. And you know, you look up and you're you're beating up on Matt Johnson and Matt Square Garden, going, damn, I remember sitting in the crowd here. You know, and, and, and but you're you're out there doing it. And, this is New York where they're, they're giving it to you, you know, and it, it was, uh, it was very, very fun. Now you mentioned, obviously Ron Farouk fired, crushed Savio PG 13, and they kind of revamped the nation with yourself, comma, uh, Mark Henry. And then of course the rock. Did you mm-hmm. like the new version of the nation better than that kind of other thrown together version of it? Um, See, I like every version of the nation, but I mean, that was more like Nation 2.0. We kind of stepped, we went younger and more aggressive to me. Um, and that was kind of a, a reset because it was giving guys like myself and, and Mark Henry and even a guy like Rocky, who did not get over very well as Rocky Maivia, it gave three young guys an opportunity to be on the national and international stage and to show our stuff. And that to me was, was 
I, that probably is, if I could pick one, that's my favorite incarnation because just it gave us all the opportunity to get out there and show the world what we could do. And we're doing it at a time when, you, like you said, there was the Monday Night War, so you're going, you know, head-to-head with the Royal Company and, and, and every segment, every minute is being, you know, monitored and watched for ratings. And it was a joy to have that much trust put in you and then go out there and perform. Yeah, it's a lot different then than it is now. Like, every segment matters. It's like, okay, the nation of domination is out there. We can't lose to WCW, whoever it might be, whether it be Hogan, NWO, mm-hmm. or whoever's on. So the nation has to perform. So I thought that was kind of a great showing. It was like, all right, like you said, you're going to get younger, you're going to get more aggressive. But what did you think about The Rock at that point? Failed as Rocky Maivia, huge success as The Rock. Did you kind of see him becoming this gigantic, huge, you know, megastar? No one can ever foresee him being this giant megastar, but you could see um, he was on the rise and he fit very well and got very comfortable in the confines of the group of the nation. And as a guy who traveled with him, you know, I could see him practicing different promos and and different inflections of his voice and and, and just trying to refine himself over the course of the, the, the next few years. And then when he was given his opportunity to step out, of the nation and go on his own, um, he just he took off like a rocket. And, and no one can see, you know, if you're back in 1998 compared to now, if someone told me that Rocky would be not only the, one of the biggest names in wrestling, but he'd be the biggest guy in Hollywood right now, uh, com- no, if, if I could appear to that, I'd, I'd be worth a billion dollars right now because I would have bet everything on it. <laughs> and it was crazy. Going from that to obviously looking where he is now, but you know he definitely took his career on nothing but you know uh, upwards because he was kind of a floundering face and he turns heel. He really turns it on, shows his promos, shows his characters, and really you know kind of proves himself. But then on the other side, it's you kind of team with Mark Henry become a team, and you guys really kind of you know took it to another stratosphere. Did you enjoy teaming with Mark? Because it seemed like you guys had great chemistry, and the crowd was really into you guys too. I love people marketing. You know, the cool thing about, and I'll say it's about the whole nation is the reason it seemed like we were having fun out there is because we were, because we were four friends who traveled together and then got to go, hey, you turn, we got, got to go play in wrestling. Um, you know, we, we would drive all day telling, thinking about what we would do that night. Um, but yeah, team, but Mark, Mark was is legit friend to this day. So it was just being out there with one of your boys, having a good old time. Um, and your job just happened to be in front of 35,000 people. Um, but it was just fun. Uh, and we had great chemistry because we, we had great chemistry out of the ring, in the car driving, and at the hotel. So, yeah, it was fun team with Mark. And um, to this day, he's one of my, my better friends in life. So looking back, there was, like, some interesting, you know, different storylines with you guys, whether you're trying to make Mark lose weight or, or you know, like the Mae Young stuff. Did you ever find some of that stuff as, like, wow, this is kind of a little bit silly, but it was definitely in keeping with the time and, and the attitude era of kind of, you know, uh, you know, a little bit of crash TV, if you will? Yeah, I mean, it was it was throw something against the wall and hope it stuck. So everything you took with a grain of salt, um, and you, you just did the best you could with what you were given, and you hope it connected to people. Um, you know, we talked about the May Young thing in the hand, but, you know, my funny stuff was, was with Mark, the interaction between myself, Mark, and China. Uh, that oh, was, yeah. some of the, oh, yeah. was some of the best TV I've ever been a part of, and I loved it to this day. Um, just, you know, 
the time Mark was going to go on a date with China and I'm going to go be his, you know, his wingman. Next thing you know, I'm his, I'm his chauffeur and his butler. It was just some fun stuff that, you know, it was, it was written well and, and we got the chance to go out there and try to pull it off and perform it well. And I was I, some of my best memories there. Definitely some funny stuff. And Mark Henry, shockingly, you know, to us at that point, because we just know him as like an Olympic, you know, um, weightlifter or like powerlifter kind of guy. It's like, wow, this guy's got a lot of character. Were you surprised? Or you knew all along, like, oh, we're just waiting for his shell to break and him to kind of become what he became. See, what you saw on TV was the Mark that was always with us in the car. So that came to no shock to me, what Mark showed on TV, because that was the Mark I, I trained with and rode with and ate dinner with. You know, he, he's a lobo, uh, uh, you know, funny guy, and he finally got a chance to show it on TV. And when that happened... You know, that's when the whole sexual chocolate thing grew, and he, he you know, came out of his shell. So that was just him letting his, his real personality out. That's funny. These little things kind of like the rock in a promo, then you kind of see him flourish. You see Mark Henry, then he becomes sexual chocolate. These little things are starting to flourish and starting to pick up steam. You, oddly enough, and this is like kind of just real strange, but that chest protector kind of made you stand out. And everyone's like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. check out Dilo. What was, like, you know, the real story behind that chest protector? Because so many people probably remember it and probably mentioned it to you now. Like, oh, I remember that chest protector. Um, funny story, and I'll tell you this right now. I remember the, I was sitting in catering, and uh, Jim Ross came and sat down next to me. He goes, hey, kid, you know, you're, you're a talent. You can wrestle. you got some character. But we need to get you something that, that separates you, to makes you stand out. And I was like, okay. And he goes, let me think on it. All right, so then the next week, catering, Jericho sits down next to me again. He goes, what if we do something like, remember old Iron Mike Sharpen had the, the, the form, and I was like, yeah, he goes, but let's do something different. Like, you're finished the frog flush. Let's do a chest protection. And my initial thought was, okay, just nod, just nod, and walk away, and hopefully he forgets. Because I thought, I was like, no way, I'll be the laughing stock of the business. And I remember coming home and, and talking to my uh, my fiance at the time and telling her, I was like, baby, they want me to, to be Johnny Bench and, and wear a chest protector. People are going to laugh at me. People are going to laugh at me. And I did not want to do it at all. And my ex-wife, my, my fiance, yes, she's my ex-wife now, but my ex-wife gave me the best advice that anyone outside the business ever gave me. She goes, try it, and if it fails, at least it, you tried it, and it failed. It might not have failed because of you, but if you turn it down, it'll fail because you said no, and you'll never know what happened. And I was like, you know, you're right. At least I can give it a try. So the next week, I go back to TV and said, all right, JR, let, let's do it. And they literally started building it like that next week. Um, and that led to me getting, you know, hurt by Dan Severn. And then two weeks later, I debuted in, uh, I think it was Pittsburgh, at Survivor, Survivor, Survivor Series. When I frog splashed Ken Shamrock in a match with Rocky with the chest check drawn. And then, you know, at first people still didn't get it. They didn't understand it. It really didn't become part of the consciousness until the DX parody of the nation when Road Dog played me. And when he came out and he shook his head, he was wearing the, the, the chest protector. And, you know, he was overdoing me, overdoing me to the point where people were like, no, he really doesn't do that. And two seconds later, I came out and people were like, Oh, damn, he, he really does do that. And that's really the day everything started taking notice. So I, I tell I tell Road Dog to this day that um, 
I still owe him royalties because I'm still making money off the Dino Brown character because of how well he played me. <laughs> <laughs> and what's great about that parody is, don't know, like, the, the behind-the-scenes aspect of it. Like, how much of that did you know going in that he was going to be doing that? Like, did you have any inkling or only when you oh. saw him kind of walk through the curtain? No, 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 because uh, we were we were in the back giving giving uh, pointers and stuff on things that oh, we wouldn't okay. say. And we didn't know we didn't know verbiage um, per se, but I I totally knew what he was going to look like when he went out there. And I kind of had a, a rough idea of what he was going to do. So, you know, people think that you know to this day, well, well the nation was mad because they were shooting on us. That, there was no shooting on the nation. They, you know, we were just as much as part of of helping them become us as they went out there doing it. So, I mean, to this day, I tell people I love it. It was one of the greatest things that, you know, happened for my character, and, and it really put heat on um, the Nation DX rivalry. And it's, it is one of those things where a lot of fans definitely remember it, and which is great because they're almost like, oh, they thought that was real. So it almost adds to the allure of it. And almost, you know, years later, people are like, wow, that was a really cool segment that, you know, so remembered through, throughout the history of time, especially – being a big part of the Attitude Era. Yeah, no, it was great TV. It was one of those segments that are, it, it's one of the better known segments of Raw during that era. Um, and, and like I said, it's 20 years later and people still come to me and talking about it um, till this day. So, you know, uh, I loved it. I loved it completely. Now, you mentioned, obviously, with the chest protector and the frog splash on Ken Shamrock at that one point, but using the frog splash and obviously being the lowdown, there was a point where Jim Ross kind of jokingly but kind of seriously said that, oh, who, you know, uh, I think Lola said, who has a better frog splash, RVD or Eddie Guerrero? And then uh, Jim Ross goes, D'Lo Brown. So it's funny. Like, so when you kind of did that finisher, is, is, it, um, you know, is it you kind of doing it your own or, or are you taking it a little bit maybe from Eddie or something? Um, actually, it's, I took it from Eddie's old partner when he was in Los Gringos Mall's Art Bar. Yep. And Art, Art Bar did it just like that. And um, that was my way. I loved it as a kid. And when I got a chance to have a finish, I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm big and no one my size is doing anything like that. Um, so I was like, no one that size, my size is doing anything like that coming up top. It was, you know, guys really my size didn't go up to the top rope at all. So I was like, let's try it. And I remember practicing it a few times and, you know, I didn't want to. I wanted to pay respect to Eddie and Art, but I didn't want to look like Eddie's because Eddie's out there doing his. Um, but it, it's an homage to Los Gringos Locos. Um, and I even remember telling Eddie, I was like, you know, I'm only doing this because I saw Art do it, and he smiled from ear to ear. Hmm. And so, yeah, that was. Uh, that's why I used that as a finish. And obviously, I think that's the reason why Eddie uses it as a finish as well. His old, uh, his yeah, old well, partner. That was. That, yeah, that was the reason I used it because it was his way of paying homage to his partner. But uh, Eddie, Eddie did it the gainer style. I did it like uh, Art Bar did, kind of a, literally like yeah. a frog. Yes, you definitely have the most pronounced one to me, anyway. I mean, all are very good, but yours is definitely the most pronounced, especially for a guy, obviously on the on the bigger side. So it's more impressive to see you do a move like that. Well, that's that's why I want to do something at. You know, I was always told do something that's going to make you stand out. And, um, you know, at the time, like I said, big guys didn't go to the top. So that's why I was like, okay, I'm athletic. Let me start doing moonsaults and frog splashes and 
and and doing things up the top rope, and it and it made me stand out even more because you didn't expect a guy who was, you know, over three hundred pounds would be doing those kind of athletic things. So um, that's what that was where I tried to make my niche. And you really do make a big niche for yourself because you end up beating Midian for the European title, then you end up beating Jeff Jarrett for the Intercontinental title. So you actually are holding both titles simultaneously, both titles at the same time. And that's a pretty big push. Where was like, where was your head at, at that point? Because it's like, wow, you know, I'm getting a major push during the hottest era in the history of the wrestling business. Um, I will tell you, I remember, I, I, I remember sitting in my hotel room that night and having both belts and thinking to myself, my God, this is really happening. But it's something you always dream of. It's, it's, you dream of getting an opportunity to go out there and, and try to connect with people and be put in the spotlight. And sometimes when it happens, you don't see it happening. But I remember sitting in the hotel room, both beds sitting on the, uh, both belts laying on the other bed and thinking to myself, this is real. Like, this is really happening. I'm, I'm really getting an opportunity to go out there. And, and at that point it was, I remember Ron, you know, the next night Ron saw me, he goes, boy, they're putting a lot of trust in you. And I was like, yeah, I know. And he goes, don't let me down. And that's all I had to hear. One, don't let them down. Don't let me down. And and I, I tried my best right from there to, to just go, 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 and, and every night work as hard as I could, and never take a night off, and and prove that that uh, they put the they they made the right choice by putting some faith in me. Now, if Ron Simmons says that to you on one aspect, it's like wow, there's so much respect there. But then there's the other side of the spectrum. Is like he's probably the scariest, toughest guy in history of business. You better not let him down. No, and, and Ron, like, till this day, he's my mentor. He's my pseudo-father. And um, if Ron tells me to jump, I'm just jumping, and I'll ask how high when, I, when I'm in the air. You know, it's just Ron is just that kind of a person. Um, and uh, I, I wanted nothing more. I would never do anything. I never wanted to let him down, particularly in a wrestling ring or anything, because um, he was one of the reasons why I was there in the first place. So, you know, it's guys like him who, made, who blazed a trail for – for guys my generation to come up and even they have an opportunity. So I wasn't going to let Ron down. Now you lose the, you know, the IC title back or, you know, or both belters, you know, to uh, Jeff Jarrett. He was a European in the NAIC to Jeff. Obviously mm-hmm. Jeff Jarrett is somebody that uh, is, you know, not, I wouldn't say um, a veteran. I mean, at this point he was a pseudo veteran, but obviously now a veteran, obviously now a guy that you've known for a long time, but, then, what did you mm-hmm. think about working with Jeff Jarrett? It seemed like you guys did have some pretty damn good chemistry at that point. I love working with Jeff. We had great chemistry. And, and the fun part about working with Jeff is he had ideas for spots that people hadn't seen in, you know, 15 years. People forget that Jeff was working, you know, 10 or 12 years before he came to WWFE, you know, down in Memphis. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, Jeff had matches upon matches long before I was even in the business. So, Jeff had such a creative mind. Um, it was so easy to just go out there and and follow him and and and, and throw my two cents in, and, and we would have you know great matches all over the country, and and I enjoyed working with them. And obviously, you know, you guys would meet later on in your in your TNA days, but uh, you know, I'll stay on WWF uh, for just a second here. So many good guys at that point that you don't even realize it that you're like kind of 
you know, in there with in there with mixing it up. Chris Jericho, for instance, a guy that you know from your Smoky mm-hmm. Mountain days, uh, Triple H, obviously would go on to become something mm-hmm. much bigger, but great guy. But I want to just talk about the, the British Bulldog for a second because you had like a brief little you know time in a few with him. Was it great mm-hmm. working with Bulldog at that point? Because obviously you know he he was kind of you know injured a little bit, but he was still that British Bulldog that we remember that awesome work. Yeah, no, it was fun being out there, and, and it was just. Look, I was living at my childhood dreams being in the ring with, you know, British Bulldogs. Because I remember when they came in and they won the tag team title. So to be out there in the ring with them was a tremendous feeling. And, and then to be battling over the European title, um, and you go a guy like Val Venison, who was my roommate in Puerto Rico. Many people don't know that. Um, uh, it, it was, uh, the, the, once again, that was a, a very, another deep roster of talent that WWF slash E locker room from, you know, 97 to 2002. It was a very deep locker room. And every guy there had the ability to be a top guy, a top star, every girl there um, to go out there. And if given the opportunity, they could have been, you know, you know, a top act. And that was, that was uh, a learning experience to be out there with them. Now, at this point, you know, there's so many, like you said, so many good guys, so many talented guys such a deep roster and it's funny looking back it's like wow look at the rock he's the number one star in hollywood arguably one of the biggest wrestling stars of all time then you even look back and it's like wow he's running the wwf he became a huge star he's still main eventing did you see triple h kind of at you know at that point like having aspirations of kind of getting into that side of the business or was he still just one of the boys he's still just one of the boys i mean you you saw me with He's a, he's a ring general, and he knew he's, he knew how to control the ring, and that was something that was he was really good at, and um, he was really uh, respected in the locker room. But you know, I never saw that that business side of him until he got into it, and then you're like, oh, he's perfect for that, um, uh, just knowing him. So you know, you didn't see it happening, but once you did start to see it, you're like, he's gonna he's gonna grow there and do well. And at this point, obviously, there's the godfather who's there, and he's one of the most overacts in the company. You started teaming mm-hmm. with him for a little bit, but it didn't last. But then they kind of put you, you know, as, as time goes by a little bit, they kind of put you in a little bit of a weird team to me anyway. I don't know. Let me get your perspective on it. But low down with Chaz and obviously you had Tiger Ali saying, did you like that team or did you think it was a weird team? Because it's two Monster Factory guys, but it's still, it's still kind of like, eh, I don't know if this is like jiving with me. I, I like the first incarnation of Lowdown where Chaz and I were wearing like the track pants and, you know, no tops. And it was just, uh, it was, it was, it was a, a good combination that way. Yeah. It was a little weird because it was two guys who didn't expect to come together, but I, I thought we were actually starting to connect with people. And then we got put with Tiger Ali Singh and then it got kind of, of a weird, um, um, then it definitely got weird. We, we switched to turbines and, genie pants and that kind of was uh not my favorite moment in you know in my wrestling career not one of my favorite moments now when something like that happens when you they're going to give you a gimmick or they kind of saddle you with something do you go to creative at all do you go to you know vince mcmahon at all or do you say like you know maybe we should go a different way or is it one of those things where it's just like okay you know I'm going to see how it goes and take the ball. I'm going to run with it as far as I can. Or are you going to say, hey, you know, let's change something up creatively? You, you take it and you try to run as hard as fast as you can to try to do the best you can with it. Once again, if it doesn't, if it fails because it's not good, 
it just failed. But if, if I try to say no, and if I say no, and then it fails because I said no. So you just go out there and you do it. You, can, you do the best you can with it, no matter what the situation is. You just try to make it the best you absolutely can. And that's what we tried to do. And it's funny at that point because, you know, you wrestled at Dudley's, Too Cool, Kai and Tai, APA, you know, all those top teams that were there at that point, and you are getting TV time. But then on the other side of the spectrum, like you said, it's one of those, like, down moments. It's like, yeah, we're getting TV time, but I don't know about this gimmick, right? It's like, it's like I don't know if this is working for me. Can't get into it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a complete different contrast than anything I had been used to in my time there. Um, and, you know, we were getting groomed to, I think, to, to, to be, you know, be a, a, a viable tag team, but then it just kind of, uh, you know, kind of just floundered and just, um, just the wheels fell off and that was about it. And then for a bit, you get sent down, you're in HWA for a little bit, you're in OVW mm-hmm. for a little bit. And I feel like with those guys that are down there, it's like, wow, you know, you get a D-Lo Brown coming down here and we actually get to train with him and work with him and have matches with him. Do you think that was kind of, uh, you know, on their, on their part, great, because look, they get a, a guy who's going to train, but on your part, you know, were you feeling a little selfish? Like, nah, I'd rather be up on the main roster. You know, I took it as an opportunity to go down and, and refine my skill. And, and, you know, I know the guys down there appreciate it because I get to help train, you know, with, with less. I get to help train the kids, in, you know, in, in uh, Cincinnati. And then uh, it was nice to go over and go over to Louisville, you know, every week or so to go do TV at Jim Cornette over at OVW. So, you know, I just took it as, you know, hey, here's what I'm given. Let me make the best of it. And, and, I attribute a lot of that, that attitude to, once again, having Ron Simmons in my ear um, because, you know, you, you can get mad or you can get upset, but that's all, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to be mad, upset, you're still going to be in Cincinnati. So why be mad, upset? Just go do what you got to do and, 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 and earn your way back up and work your way back up. But at the same time, um, refine your teaching skills because you might be taking the next step in your career. So that's, that's what I allow myself to do. And then, look, you wrestle a guy like Batista, he learns a ton, and then he ends up getting called up, you know, a little bit later on and ends up mm-hmm. becoming a huge star again. So it's like, you know, yeah, I'm going down there, but I am helping these guys. And then you see a guy like Batista. Does that kind of give you some, you know, some encouragement? It's like, wow, I am, you know, really um, kind of a key cog in the wheel here as far as helping these guys along. Absolutely. To me, it was a different level of trust that, they, that the WWE, you know, needs gave me because they were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to trust you to go down and help, help mold the guy that we see our future in three or four years with. And, you know, guys like, you know, Batista and Cena and, and Randy Orton were all down there. And it's kind of like you, you step back now and look at it and go, well, I had a small piece in, in, in that. And that makes me, you know, it makes our time down there even more enjoyable because you're part of that, what the company still is to this day. Which is awesome, and, and, you know, obviously that will help in the future or, you know, in the, in the quote-unquote in the now, obviously, with the whole fantasy slam thing going on. Mm-hmm. But with you, with when you come back to the WWF and, you know, you're wrestling Eddie and Regal and Booker T and all these guys, I feel like the most prominent thing, and I thought had a lot of likes to it, was the whole thugging and bugging thing with Teddy Long. Did you like that pairing? I felt like that was a pretty good, you know, entertaining duo, especially with Teddy at the helm. I liked the pairing, um, and I thought we were going to do something with it, and I thought it was, um, it was, you know, a step in the right direction. It was a take off, and, and, you know, we both did. I love being out there with Teddy. He's a 
you know, a great guy to be around and loved having management. Um, it just didn't connect um, like we thought it was going to. Yeah, it was like one of those things, like, wow, this, this has legs to it or possibly, and then it kind of ends up all for naught. You end up getting released not too long after that. Was that something where the contract was up or, you know, or you wanted, you felt like time was to go, or what was the reason behind the release? Um, my contract is up. We just mutually decided to uh, part ways to uh, allow myself to grow out in the world um, of wrestling and, and, and WWE wanted to go in a different direction. So it was uh, the contract was up and wasn't going to be renewed. And, and just, uh, we just said, we just, you know, mutually agreed to part ways. And then it's kind of one of those things where it happens again. You end up in TNA pretty soon thereafter. Obviously, mm-hmm. Jeff Jarrett again, Vince Russo again. So, you, you know, you're seeing some very, very familiar faces. But to me, it's almost like, well, you get D'Lo, a great veteran guy, a guy that can work. Let's put him in there with somebody who we consider the future of the company, some guy we want to look at, some guy we want to, you know, really build upon. And I thought that was AJ Styles. Did you have did you at that point enjoy kind of mentoring him along? Because I feel like that was like the first time we were seeing uh, AJ really kind of step up his game into new levels. Uh, absolutely. And that was something that was intentional and that was Jeff's foresight of, of hey, here's the kid that we think we can, you know, we can, we can put the company on in a year. We need you to help him get up to speed. So, you've got all this, this, this knowledge and, and, and a resume behind you, give a little bit to him. And uh, I had, I, I loved it. And AJ and I had some kick-ass matches, whether we were teaming together or we were going at it. And AJ was like a sponge. After the match, he would sit there and pick my brain. We'd go out to dinner. You know, we would sit and talk for hours about the business and psychology and, and, and how to do things, and you know, not not that I can claim everything that AJ did, but I think I had a, a little bit of a small part in, you know, the AJ style that grew up from the young kid with the short hair and in in not in um, Nashville to, you know, into the AJ style now the phenomenal one now walking up and down on TV on, on Tuesday nights. Now I loved your your run in TNA. I don't know how you feel about it, but I really felt like that really put. AJ kind of on the map, whether you guys were having a steel cage match, where you guys were having a best two out of three falls match. Were you, you know, were you feeling it at that point? Were you really enjoying, you know, the X-Files in ring? Were you feeling like you were clicking on all cylinders? I thought I was. I thought I was, um, the best part about when I was down at TNA is, you know, it was, it was nice that they gave us creative liberty to do our own thing. Um, and, and, and gave us creative freedom over, you know, not only our character, but our matches and our style of work. And I thought that was some of my best work. And, but up until I went to Japan, I think that's where I did my best work at. But um, I think, that they, you know, Jeff gave us an opportunity to go out there and just be ourselves and and help the product. And, and it was so nice to go out there with AJ because he and I had tremendous, tremendous chemistry together, and we just flowed well off each other. I don't want to, like, skip around too much or maybe fast forward too much, but I just wanted to mention this while we're talking about TNA. I just want to make sure I definitely talked about AJ, but since we you know, have you on and since you're the former vice president, I feel like I have to mention this because we mentioned it to Wes Briscoe. We mentioned it to uh, Garrett Bischoff. We mentioned it to Ken Anderson. I got to go talk about the aces and eights just for a second what are your thoughts on the aces and eights did you like the storyline did you like being the vice president 
uh, I love the storyline. We were all, you know, it was it was basically a, a riff off Sons of Anarchy, and we're all fans of that show. So it was nice to go out there and and and, and be the, uh, you know, be part of that, you know, that same similar type of a, a click. Um, you know, and it that happened actually quite accidentally. Me being even in Ace and Eights, because um, that was set up to be a, a younger man's crew. And I had already settled in the, the backstage role. Um, but initially when the Ace and Eights uh, were just attacking people, they were wearing masks and just attacking people. And Eric Bischoff said, hey, uh, D'Lo, can you go out there? And, and there, the couple guys were struggling with a couple things. He goes, here, put the mask on today. You go out there and just go out there and, and help lead these guys and show them how to, to do this. And I was like, cool. And then the next week he was like, can you do it again? And then again, and accidentally evolved into an on-screen character because I, that was, I don't believe was ever the intention of having me be, you know, reveal myself as being vice president. It just worked out that way. And then I had a very, um, I had a very distinct body and head. So people kind of knew it was me. So it was kind of hard to, uh, it was kind of hard to, to hide that fact. So I think that's just how it was, happened organically. And what's interesting is that, you never know with like a fan base whether they like it, they don't like it. They were definitely pissed. They were definitely throwing trash in the ring. They definitely hated you guys. But Ken Anderson, Briscoe, and Bischoff, when we asked them, they all loved Aces and Eights. Were you loving Aces and Eights? You know, as much as the other guys. Loved it just as much. We all had a ball doing it. Loved it. Um, I thought that story could have gone even deeper and longer. And um, I loved the whole concept of what Ace and Nates was. Loved it from top to bottom. So interesting. You know, all the guys like it, but you never, you know, you, you don't know. Sometimes you just don't know whether, you know, they like stuff or they don't like stuff. I just always thought that was interesting. It's like, wow, everyone that we talked to so far, it's like four out of four, home run. You know, uh, everyone really enjoyed Aces and Eights. And I feel like when you put it all together with the storyline, everything did make sense, but perhaps, Cut too short, do you right? Do you think it maybe ended a little too soon? I think it ended a little too soon, but that's you know, that's either here or now. Now, but I think it could have, like I said, could have gone longer, and we could have gone, you know, deeper and more aggressive with it. But um, it ended when it ended. It was a great memory, and uh, I think I got friends to the day, you know, for the rest of my life because of it. But yeah, everyone who was part of it, I can tell you right now, you can ask anyone who was part of it. They all loved it. Now, speaking of Japan, speaking of your best work, I got to mention this because you know we're talking about Aces and Eights being a, a great storyline, or you know you're, you guys loving that storyline when it was existing. But another faction that you were in for quite a while, and perhaps this name doesn't quite make sense in English, but R O and D, roughly obsessed yeah. to destroy. What was it about Japan that you really, really enjoyed so much, especially all Japan? Did you like R-O-N-D, even though yeah, it loved, possibly didn't make sense English-wise? It, it, it didn't make it, it made no sense English. It looks better <laughs> in kanji. Um, but when you said it in English, it makes no sense at all. Um, but I loved – it was, uh, you know, just, we were a, a, a weird bullet club before those bullet club, in my opinion. We were out there, just a bunch of Americans who were running rough shot. You know, me, Bull Buchanan, um, uh, 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 Fatu, who, Umaga, before he was Umaga. Uh, Mike Austin was in the group, uh, a guy named Jerry Toot, the wall. And we were just out there just destroying 
you know, old guard of all Japan and just making people mad at us. And it was, you know, it was an amazing part of, we went there, all Japan was struggling and we kind of, we kind of helped prop all Japan up for, you know, four or five years and, and ROD went through, it went through different incarnations, you know, quite just like the nation did, but it still, it was something that really put all Japan back on the map in terms of popularity in Japan. And, you know, for me in Japan, I have a low threat with Japan. I, I, I've admired Japan from the, you know, when I first started knowing about wrestling and knowing there was different wrestling in Japan and admiring the work rate and admiring, you know, uh, the character and the, and, and the style of work. And I was always told, if, you know, getting to Japan once is easy, but getting brought back a whole bunch of times proves you know how to work. And that was like that, that was like that, that, that notch in my belt you had to have to prove you could get over in Japan. And so, I love Japan. I could, you know, I'd go back to Japan right now and wrestle right now. That's how much I love it. And all Japan, like you said, it was like kind of, you know, was it going to be floundering? Was it whatever? But then you guys did bring the business up and, you know, with Muda there and uh, mm-hmm. Kata and Kojima, there was definitely a huge, you know, popularity for the old guard. Obviously, Kojima was coming mm-hmm. up at that point, but, Muda and Takata, obviously two of arguably the greatest of all time. Do you love to mm-hmm. with guys like that? Because that is just a total honor to be able to kind of get in there and mix it up with them and then get over on their expense. And, and, and I'll tell you this. I love being there. On my first night in all Japan, my first absolute night, I landed in Tokyo. They kind of messed my flight up. I landed in Tokyo. I've got to take a three-hour train to Osaka. So I literally have to work as soon as I land. I get to the building in Osaka. And now... Mind you, I haven't seen much of Japanese wrestling, and I haven't seen how a lot of guys look. So I sit down, and they go, uh, the Japanese interpreter goes, okay, tonight, um, tonight, please, you catch, uh, you know, you get win with uh, Frog Splash um, in, in six-man main event. And I was like, okay, no problem. Well, they didn't tell me I was beating the great murder in my first night in all Japan. And so when I go, I go, I go, wrestling Muda and I'm pinning the great Muda my first night in and I had to sit back and I looked over at Bobby Cannon and and we were both like man they are really wanting us to to do something and it was a statement my first night in I'd be great Muda with the frog splash one two three in the middle clean the middle of the ring and riding back to the hotel at night I was like I, I've been in the ring with a lot of guys for some reason it was more impressive being in the ring with the great Muda I don't know why but it was just, it was an amazing feeling. I remember sitting with Bull in the hotel going, Bull, I think we got something special here. And, you know, for the next five years, we just, like I said, ran rough shot all over Japan. I love it. Gaijin's dominating the, you know, the, the locals over there and the ROD kind of just taking over. Like you said, Bullet Club before the Bullet Club, and you guys doing the heel tactics and doing things like that. Do you get a chance to watch any New Japan Pro Wrestling today? Do you actually watch, you know, the guys like Bullet Club and see what they're doing over there? I actually just watched the uh, New Japan special this past week on um, on Axe, and um, I, I I know I've watched a lot of the Bullet Club stuff because I'm good friends with um with, with uh, Gallo, so it was um it was it was fun to watch that stuff and and and, and see what they were doing, um, but. You know, it always feels like they were doing the stuff that we did. And not, not to take anything away from them, because what they were doing is amazing. 
And what they did was they took our stuff to the next level. And so it's fun watching um, what some of the Bullet Club, Club stuff did, you know, did. You know, I think guys like Kenny Omega are amazing. Um, I love the Young Bucks. Um, obviously, Anderson and Gallows are two top talents. So, I mean, I enjoyed watching their work. Now, not only did you work for All Japan, ROD, and kind of take over, you were also in NOAA for a while working for the other, mm-hmm. you know, basically, if you want to say um, Kawada, is you know an amazing talent. Uh, if you want to say Muda mm-hmm. is awesome, then you got to look at Masawa. What was it like working for the other side of the spectrum and working for Noah and bringing Bull with you as well? That was cool because that was we were we were literally recruited to come over. It was like, hey, now it's time to help us. And so we took our talents over to I feel like LeBron here. Took my talents to Noah. <laughs> um, and so we went over and got a chance to work with um, you know like Masawa and Kawada and. Um, you're looking at guys who are who are like icons in this country, um, and then you know a guy like a, a guy like Bison Smith was there. God rest his soul, who was a great talent who never really got an opportunity here in the states. But um, it was nice to go there and work opposite of All Japan for a little while. And then uh, Noah gave us a, a great honor when they made us only the second All foreign tag team to hold the GHC tag team title. And, you know, you know, that was pretty awesome position to be put in when they were like, okay, you're going to be the, you know, only second full guy team tag team to hold the titles. The first one was Chico Scorpio and, and Vader. So other than that, you know, it was pretty, pretty amazing on them. They put on us to go, okay, you're going to be our tag champ. So that was pretty cool. And pretty elite company yeah. as well. Just awesome stuff. But as I as I start to wind it down here, you know you've had such a story career. Whether it be the Attitude Era, with a great run at Smoky Mountain, you know, fellow Jersey guy like us. What do you think? You know, what was your kind of favorite era? Did you love working at WWF, or was really Japan your favorite time in the business? Um, you can't take anything from Attitude Era. There was there was nothing like it, in my opinion. Um, it was just the business clicking on all cylinders, all talent clicking all cylinders. There's a competition in the ring to be great in the ring. There's a competition backstage to make sure you were better than what was going on down south. Um, it was so hyper-competitive. It was, it was just enjoyable and created great stars, great matches, and, and great work rate. And to me, that's just, to me, the best attitude. It was the best era and, and my best time in the business. Now, everyone always says The Rock takes the best stunner, but you take a damn good stunner as well from Stone Cold Steve Austin. Don't you agree? I, I pat myself on the back. I think I take a good, pretty damn good stunner. I think Steve would think so, too. <laughs> now, you've had so many great matches. We were talking, like, uh, Jericho. Uh, we throw X-Pac. You guys had some awesome matches in a great feud. Uh, Jared, you're all the stuff you did in Japan, even in ROH, making, you know, kind of a surprise appearance in 2009, showing that you can go with guys like Danielson and McGinnis and an old mm-hmm. guy like Jerry Lynn. Do you have a favorite match or even a couple favorite matches when you really, you know, think about your basically amazing career? Um, I probably have three, like, tentpole matches where I consider my favorite. Um, my first would be me and Valvina SummerSlam 97. 98, 98, 97, 98. 98. Yeah, some 98. Um, in that square garden. I mean, the cool thing about that was 
the year before, Val and I were sitting on a couch in Puerto Rico watching SummerSlam together. Then the next year, we're both opening the show up. So, uh, and then they go, here, guys, here's, here's 20 minutes. Go open up. At that point was one of the most important views that we had gone through at that time. Um, and we're doing it in Madison Square Garden. Here's 20 minutes. Go have fun. Open the show up and set the tone. Um, I can – my next set of matches, I would, I would lump all of my matches with X-Pac together. Because um, X-Pac and I, I think we had such great chemistry. We could meet in the subway and have a hell of a match. Um, you know, we, we could just go anywhere. Um, he and I just got that good in the ring together that we, you know, we, we knew each other were doing. We felt each other's – you know, really for each other's thoughts. So, I mean, and you can't have a bad match with Xbox. He's just too hell of a good of a worker. And um, my uh, last favorite match would be the night that Bobby Ken and I lost the uh, Noah Tag Team titles to uh, uh, Marafuji Segura. And it was, it was, it was amazing because we lost the belt but the, the Japanese crowd started chanting ROD, ROD after we lost, and that's not something that they do. And they showed that, that shows how much respect they had for us and, and the work we put out there and how we fit right into um, what was going on in NOAA. So those are kind of like the three things where I consider um, I love up my career, and, and, you know, if I close my eyes, I could finally see any one of those matches right now. And Marafuji, arguably right now, you know, we're talking about some New Japan guys, but let's talk about pro wrestling Noah. Marafuji right now, arguably the best wrestler in the business. Amazing talent. Did you put he is tremendous. Time? Yes, you could see him growing. Yes. All he needed was an opportunity because the guy, there were guys on top like Kenta who were there, you know, Kobashi who was, was, was working his way out. But Marafuji was growing underneath and was, uh, was you could just see he was going to be, um, something special, and now you know. Fast forward six years, he's one of the top, utterly one of the top workers on the planet, and you know I'm very happy for him. It's great the amount of guys that you've been in there with that is just like as far as the Japanese guys, and maybe a lot of people don't realize just top talent. Uh, Jun Akiyama, you've wrestled, who's amazing. Takayama's amazing, and then one of my mm-hmm. favorite guys who retired recently, Morishima Takeshi Morishima, another old yeah. guy. Yeah, Morish- Morishima was um, literally. Japanese Bam Bam Bigelow, but he moved like a cat. He was 380 pounds, but could, I mean, he could do some stuff, and I love being in the ring with him. It was amazing. I mean, I, I, I consider myself very lucky and blessed to have been in the ring with as much talent as I have been with. I've been fortunate to have, have shared the ring with a lot of stars, superstars, and megastars, and, and you know, when I look back on my career, I, I, I tell you, I'm there's nothing I would I would take back. I love I love where I've, you know where I've been, where I've gone, and and hopefully where I'm still gonna go. So, um, man, I consider myself lucky. <laughs> now, is there any kind of we've made so many great wrestlers? Is there any kind of under under the radar guys that we haven't mentioned or wouldn't even think of to mention that you had some awesome matches with, whether it be Japan, Puerto Rico, maybe even WWF, a guy we wouldn't even think of. Couple, so many guys are so good. Um, you know, there was Crash Holly, rest his soul. He was amazing. Most people didn't know about him. I mean, you thought of him as a, you know, the, 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 you know, the comedy character. But when you did, when you work with him on a house show, he could go. He could flat out. Um, love my matches with Bob Holly, um, who everyone knows Bob can can work. 
um, Billy Gunn, but, you know, I'm talking about superior talent here. I mean, there's not someone who's so far in the radar you don't know him because you can see talent when you see it. Um, people know talent. Um, and, and like I said, I'm just fortunate that I had the, the opportunity to be in there with so many good guys, you know, throughout my career. And now you're going to be giving a lot of guys the opportunity to get into the ring and get into the world of Fantasy Slam. We want to give out the website. It's FantasySlamProWrestling.com. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation because if you think about that Attitude Era, you think about D'Lo Brown because you played such a big part in so many different parts of that and just magical run that the WWE went on. But let's bring it back to Fantasy Slam. And, again, let's give them the final push what can we expect with Fantasy Slam? What do you guys want to do with it going forward? And, of course, please give us any of the pertinent information that we have to look forward to for some of the things that you guys have coming up in the world of Fantasy Slam. Man, I, I will tell you that Fantasy Slam is the way, um, once again, that the, the average guy, the guy who's been a fan, the guy who's sat on his couch and always thought, I'd love to do that, or – the guy who, who said, man, I should have done that when I was younger. I always wanted to be a pro wrestler. Well, now is your opportunity to go out there and, and live like a star and actually be in the ring and, and feel and breathe and, and, and see what it feels like to be that star for a few days. And, oh, by the way, you get to hang out with legends like Jake Roberts or Rick and Dragon Steamboat. And you get to learn from guys like that and Al Snow. And, and you get, to, you get to, to be in the ring, you get to have a match. You get to cut promos. You get to live the life of a pro, of a pro wrestler for a few days, and it, it gives anybody out there the opportunity to live out their dream that they've always wanted to live. And I just I, I can't say enough. I believe in this concept. I love this concept. And, you know, I, I like teaching the guys how to become that star. So please, guys, visit the website. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter. Um, come on out, man. You'll enjoy it. It's Fancy Slam. It's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And, um Trust me, just ask anybody who's been there. They, they're very vocal about it on social media. They all enjoy the experience and, and would recommend it to anybody. Now, it's, uh, it's such a cool concept, and definitely, if you can get out there, definitely try your best. And, deal. the way we love to end it, before we get to the final plug here, is we love to look at your career again. We just did a long talk here and telling us that you've been a fan your whole life and all the stops you had in between. But at the end of the day, when the book is closed and you look back on your entire career, what do you want the fans to remember about the legacy of D'Lo Brown? And what does D'Lo Brown feel like he has left so far in professional wrestling? Um, as far as the legacy of D'Lo Brown, I was a fan who, who went out there and, and, and wanted to live my dream. And at 13 years old, I told my sister I was going to do that. And, you know, you know, 15 years later, there I was standing in the middle of a ring doing it for real. And, and, and I never wanted to, to take a night off. I never wanted to let the fans down. I wanted to give a, a genuine effort every night I stepped in the ring and, and wanted to make sure everyone got their money's worth. And that's what I always tried to do no matter what, whether it was entertaining and talking or in the ring bumping around. So I, I hope fans saw that and, 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 you know, had a good time with it. Um, going forward, I, you know, I'm – I'm signaling out of working, and I'm more of a teacher now, and I, I want to help mold that next generation of, of star. Um, so, you know, we also have the Fantasy Slam Academy where we, we train students, and, and I want to I make sure that 
you know, I want to give back all the knowledge that was given to me because I can't take it with me, but I can give it to the next. So, you know, in a very selfish way, Dino Brown can live forever. So um, I want to give all that knowledge back to the next generation. So that, that's kind of like what I wanted. My, my focus now is, is teaching and training. And that's, uh, that's absolutely amazing. It's so cool to see. You know, we've watched you for so long, but to hear how big of a fan you were, it's just it makes it all better. And for those getting out to Fantasy Slam, you got to remember, you're never too old or out of shape to live your dreams. So do what everybody has been doing so far with Fantasy Slam and get your behinds and take your chest protectors and get out to Fantasy Slam. And D-Lo, before we let you go, please share with the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling where they can find anything and everything in the world of D-Lo Brown. Well, I'm a big Twitter guy, um, so you can always hit me up on, at DLoBrown75 on Twitter. I'm the only verified DLo. Um, you'll see me on there talking anything from Bears football to Liverpool soccer to, uh, you know, Fantasy Slam to what I'm doing next or, you know, talking about my new action figure that's coming out. So if you want to hit me up, that's the only place to get me, and I'm very interactive. So at DLoBrown75, just give me a shout. Say, hey, you heard me here, and I'll, uh, I'll definitely talk back with you. Yeah, the action figure is a big deal. That uh, that that has definitely turned some heads. These uh, the action figure market is booming. The collectors are running out in droves. Anybody who's a classic superstar, and we don't like to think of you as classic. We think of you as timeless. But those, uh, yeah, those action figures, man, what a frenzy, huh? Those fans, they go crazy for those things. Those things are legit, and they fly off the shelves, and they look great. They're, they're way different than the action figures I grew up with because um, these things look real as real can be. And, and yeah, people people devour these things. They, they take them off the shelves in, in dozens. They don't buy one or two. They buy 10 or 12. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that coming out. It comes out in September, and I'm, I'm very anxious for it to come out. It's that and the encyclopedias because I'm sure you're a guy who's definitely in that thing at least, what, three, four times? <laughs> I'm in the, I know in every version, I've seen at least three or four versions of that encyclopedia. I am in there as D-Lo, Lowdown, uh, The Nation. So I'm in there at least three times. <laughs> I think you, Bob Holly, uh, there's a couple other guys that, uh, there's a few that you could definitely pick out, but got to love it. We, uh, we absolutely appreciate all the time tonight, D-Lo, and uh, all the best at Fantasy Slam because we will be watching and hopefully watching it grow to uh, new heights. Guys, appreciate the time, and um, I'll be back on any time you need me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.